Well, thank you all for allowing me the second chance to be at this conference. Uh, I spoke last year, and I'm going to expand on a topic I actually broached last year in my talk. Um, but thank you to I-squared for um, uh, organizing this and all the efforts that went into this extremely valuable conference. And I want to thank everybody who's here, not just because you're here to listen to me rant, but because you're here because you care so much about whether you're an insider or you're not an insider, you care about spreading the truth of the gospel to people, to my people, to the Muslim people, the people who I once was immersed in and once was, and now I'm a follower of Christ. And so I want to thank you for that commitment. You came from places that were hard to get from to here, and I, I really appreciate that level of commitment to come here and talk about these things. Um, as I mentioned, uh, I'm a former Muslim. It's in the handout, obviously, but I say that out, out, out front because it's going to become important later. I'm going to leave it at that. I used to be a Muslim. I used to be a committed Shia. And so the topic I'm going to discuss with you is near and dear to my heart because it's near and dear to my experience. But more than that, and I'm hoping to show this, it's near and dear to the actual prescriptions in the Bible, in God's Word. You see in uh, Peter talk about how he had the experience of the transfiguration, how he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration the, um, the transfigured Christ. He got a glimpse of that, that majesty. Yet he says right after that that his experience wasn't as sure. We have a more sure record, a more sure um, testimony which is found in Scripture. In other words, his experience wasn't as important as the Scripture upon which it was based. And so I want to bring in my experiences, but I want to show you that they're grounded, grounded in Scripture. When I had an idea for this paper, I called uh, Josh, and I told him, my idea for the paper is to talk about persecution and how it's a necessary and a blessed part of the conversion experience and evangelism. And he shot back a question to me. He says, so are you ready to say that Muslims should stand up publicly and declare their faith in hostile countries if it means being beheaded? Now, the answer is, I actually am. Yes, the answer is yes. But I was taken aback by the question. See, Josh wasn't being argumentative, although he's, he can do that. He's good at that. But he was pointing something out. Are you ready to stand up for the harsh consequences of the worldview or of the view that you're going to espouse? Are you ready to do that? And it took me aback for a moment. It didn't change my answer, but it took me aback because it made me think about my answer. Do I really believe what I'm going to say? Do I really believe what I'm going to tell you in the next few minutes? Do I really believe that persecution is inextricably intertwined with the conversion experience? Do I really believe that persecution is inextricably intertwined with evangelism, effective evangelism, and that it is a painful way, but a God-given way to form an identity? Do I really believe these things? That's what his question actually got me to commit myself to. Do I really believe what I'm going to tell you today? And I do. Now, let me back up and tell you that I came at this issue because I saw in the insider movement a goal to create, or to avoid extraction of converts from their Muslim community so that the new convert can become a transformer within his community. He can become a, a better witness or a more effective evangelist within his community by avoiding extraction. And how do you avoid extraction but 
by maintaining your socio-religious identity, according to uh, uh, an I am term. As a Muslim, you maintain that socio-religious identity, yet you embrace the gospel. And this avoids the ostracization and the persecution that comes from identifying yourself as a Christian. And in so doing, I will assume, as others have said today, that I am proponents are actually mean, mean well in the desiring of spreading the gospel in the kingdom of God, and like me, they have a built-in desire to want to prevent believers from experiencing pain. I will assume that, but the question comes back again. What does the Bible have to tell us? What is the very scripture we want them to believe tell us about pain and persecution in connection with believing and evangelism? And what does it, if we want them to believe it, the question I have for each one of us, myself included, is do we believe it? What does the Bible say? It says the first thing to me about this topic is that persecution and pain that come from identifying yourself with Christ is inextricably linked to evangelism and sound missiology. Paul, in admonishing his prodigy, his protege, Timothy, tells him in first, 2 Timothy 3, and it bleeds over in, in 2 Timothy 4, as he's telling him how to be a pastor, how to be an evangelist, he says, but you followed my teachings, con conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. That what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Here's the important uh, focus. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus, will, will, will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He goes on, 2 Timothy 4, as he charges his, his ward, his protege, uh, protege, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance, his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, Exhort, and with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away uh, their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. And here's the part I want to focus on again. He says, preach the word. And he says, but you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The entire context of the, these, these passages tell us, preach the word, do the work of an evangelist, links the two, and, do, and right after doing the work of an evangelist, or right before that, endure hardship. It links the two. Fulfilling your ministry is to endure hardship as you do the work of an evangelist. The hardship he's talking about is given to us in the last few verses of chapter 3, the persecutions, who, who will, all who desire to live godly lives will suffer. These are the hardships. So you see in this context, you see, he's saying, this is all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Endure hardships. Do the work of an evangelist. Preach the word. They're linked. They're not separable. They're just not separable. And so as you encourage a Muslim convert to Christ to do the work of an evangelist, to be an insider, so that he's not persecuted, I ask, 
Is it possible to do that? Is it possible to live a godly life in Christ Jesus and not be persecuted? Is it possible? There's a strange passage in Acts. I found it bizarre when I first read it. And it has a paradoxical bizarreness to it that, that actually highlights its truth. The Lord tells Ananias to go to the house on Straight Street to meet the greatest missionary that the world will ever, will ever know, the Apostle Paul, who was Saul. And he says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings, and who else? His own context, the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. This seems like a strange invitation, doesn't it? Be my evangelist, for I will show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. That's an invitation? That's a, a rallying kind? You know, Uncle Sam needs you kind of a thing? This, is, this, this sounds bizarre. But somehow this is linked to Christ's purpose in calling Paul to be the greatest missionary the world's ever known. What an evangelist must suffer, I learned from this and from Timothy, is woven together with being an instrument for the gospel. What an evangelist must suffer is woven together with being an, an instrument for the gospel. And my question stands, do you believe this? And the paradoxes abound in Paul's story. The paradoxes abound in Paul's narrative. And as he describes his own circumstances of persecution, you see in Philippians 1, in verses 12 to 14, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He's in prison. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and, every, and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, here's the part that gets me, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Does that not strike you as odd? That why should Paul's chains encourage the brothers to speak without fear? They were meant to do the opposite of that. The persecution was meant to give them fear to prevent them from, from preaching the word of God. Paul's change encouraged them. It encouraged them. And history tells us, and Paul's, in the first century, and for 300 years later, the church boomed because of persecution, because of the believer's chains. It boomed because of it. Do we believe this? Do you believe it? Jesus' own words reinforce this. Jesus' very own statements reinforce this. You see it in Luke 21, verses 12 to 19 where he says, they will lay their hands on you and will, will, will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. Here's the part that I love. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. What will? Persecution will. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The insider movement wants to produce indigenous evangelists within the context who preach the word and do the work in, the, and do the work in the evangelist by avoiding extraction 
In other words, avoiding persecution. Jesus tells us the exact opposite. The exact opposite. He says, they will persecute you, and it will be an opportunity for your testimony. Do you believe this? Jesus' own words, Paul's statements about his predicament, tells us that the work of an evangelist entails persecution. It requires suffering. It requires it. It entails it. And what's more important about Jesus' own words, what does he talk about? He talks about being delivered up by your own family. The very thing we're trying to avoid have happen. He doesn't say you'll be persecuted by the government. He doesn't say you'll be persecuted by the Romans, although I'm sure he, that, it, that entails it here in the religious leaders. I mean, that's, that's, an, that's an entailment here. But he points out you will be delivered by your brothers and your parents and relatives and friends. That's what happens in the Muslim world. They're delivered up by their brothers and their parents and their relatives and their friends. And he says, that is the opportunity for your testimony. Yes, indeed, it is true. Muslims hate betrayal, cultural betrayal, familial betrayal. They hate it. They, I'm, a, I'm a firsthand hater of it when I saw it happen with others. And, I'm not, and then I was a recipient of that same hate. They hate shame and dishonor. They hate those things. But can I tell you a secret? A small but powerful secret? They admire conviction. They admire your stand. And though they hate what you're doing, somewhere, somewhere, the glimmer, the splinter in the mind, is the adm admiration for your conviction to stand in the midst of pain, in the midst of that persecution. It is what shows your faith to be genuine. Not true, but genuine within you. I actually recall a phone call I got. I was a convert to, to Christ for about two years, and I got a phone call from some woman I've never met before. She calls me, and she didn't even say hello. In a fairly thick Arabic accent, she says, Mr. Murray, I heard that you uh, became a Christian. How could you do this? I went off on a tear. I gave her the theological reasons, the apologetics, all the philosophical underpinnings for my view from Augustine to Zwindling for about a half an hour. And when I let her have it, let it sink in. And she says, Mr. Murray, that's all very nice. I wanted to know how you could become a Christian knowing what it would cost you. She didn't want to know how I became a Christian. She wanted to know how I could become one knowing what it would cost. She wanted to know, do you believe this enough to suffer for it? And that was a witness to her. My dissertations on why I was a Christian were important, but they didn't matter as much to her as how I could become one and whether or not it was true enough for me to stick by. In the words of John Piper, he said this, what the world is waiting to see what might awaken a sense of Christ's value is something radical, some risk, some crazy sacrifice, some extraordinary love, something salty and bright. They may not like it when they see it. They may crucify it, but it will, they will not be bored. Stephen's face shone like an angel. His wisdom was irresistible, so they killed him. But they did not yawn, and they did not go to sleep. And Acts 8, Paul's conversion, makes clear, or Acts 9, makes clear that Stephen's death was not in vain.
do you believe this? Do we believe this? The question for you and for me is, do you believe that? The second thing Scripture tells me is that persecution is an, an inevitable part of the Christian experience, and it produces the blessing of a sense of real identity. So not is it only intertwined with the evangelism that we're all called to, not only is it inextricably linked to it, but it's a fundamental part of who you are in Christ. Why do I say this? You see, there is a profound sense of irony in the insider movement. There are so many articles I've read. Kevin Higgins, Rebecca Lewis, and others ask us to honor what they call God-given identities of socio-religious identities of Muslims, which will lead to a diminished persecution. And this is where perhaps the unintended robbery happens. They don't intend to rob them of their identity, but they actually do. In asking them to preserve their, their, their God-given identity, they rob them of their actually God-given identity. Christ says in John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He links his identity with persecution, and he asks you, do you link yours with that persecution? What are his words in Luke 6, in verses 22 to 23? He says, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Suffering persecution leads to the ultimate blessing. He discusses a blessing here, but there's an ultimate blessing, I think. And that's knowing Christ and forging a true identity of being conformed to be like him in the fellowship of his suffering. In Philippians 3, you see that. Philippians 3, verse 7 and, and following. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I counted all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through, through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And here's the part that I love. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed a new identity to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. For the convert, your God-given identity is not your socio-religious identity. Christ doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say that. You are not a Muslim who happens to believe in Jesus. Sorry, you're not. You're a sufferer. You are conformed to his death and his resurrection. For believing in Jesus is not enough to form the truth, the true identity you have in Christ. In fact, he says, he te uh, Paul tells us this in Philippians. He says it again. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Belief entails suffering. It, it, it's, it's, it's linked to it. And if you don't have that, then I don't know if you have him. I don't know if you have him. Do we believe this? These are not my words. I haven't said anything in Scripture that I've interpolated. These are Christ's words. These are Paul's words. Those who suffered the most for the faith. 
Do we believe their words? Do we believe their words? How does this apply? How can I, why would I mention at the beginning of this talk that I am a former Muslim? Why would I say that? When I became a Christian, I kept it to myself for a year. I didn't tell anybody other than the Christians that I knew. Out of fear of what would happen with family, would they reject me? Would, I, would there be violence in my community? What could I lose? I also thought, how can I better express my faith in a way that's not repulsive to them? In some ways, I was a bit of an insider. Could I maintain a Christian witness within that community without ever telling them I was a Christian? And in doing so, let me tell you this. I robbed myself of something. That persecution, that suffering, I eliminated it from the picture. And the joy, the delicious joy that I had in those first few moments when I, was re when I realized I am his now and I have eternal life, that dimmed. It dimmed for a year. I became depressed. The joy of the conversion was gone. The secrecy was smothering the flame. It was smothering it. It was killing it. I found myself in the ensuing months far from the intimacy I felt at that first moment. And a friend reminded me when I was discussing with him, this with him. He reminded me of Acts 9. He reminded me that Christ said to Ananias, Go, I will show him all he must suffer for my namesake. He pointed it out to me that I was letting the worries about what would happen in my community, what would happen with my own self-identity, all these things were stuffing the flame out. I was not willing to endure what I must suffer for his namesake. I was not willing. And that unwillingness, that secrecy, was robbing me of the intimacy and fellowship in his sufferings. It was robbing me of it. It was robbing me of the intimacy of knowing who Christ is by knowing what he suffered. That's how we know and identify in some way with who Christ is. That's why I became a Christian in the first place, because he was willing, the God of Islam is not willing to suffer for you or to do anything for you. He refuses, in fact, it, absolutely. He refuses to do so. The optimally loving, the maximally loving being would do something that is maximally loving in action. And the God of Islam will not do and cannot do the maximally loving thing, which is to sacrifice himself for you. The God of Islam, the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, Jesus actually does the most maximally loving thing there is to do. He gives of himself. And I was attracted to that. That's why I became a Christian. And I was willing to, to, to not go and undergo that same suffering myself and thereby rob myself of the true blessing that Christ talks about, that identity with him. And I decided I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live robbed of my joy. So I came out with it. And it wasn't easy. And it's still not easy. I can stand in front of 10,000 Muslims and debate with them about something and hear the ho hostile questions and some of the threats, but you stand across the table at a loved one who looks like they're dying when you tell them you're a Christian. That's hard. But that's Christ. I've been reminded every single day of my witness to family, to friends, to strangers that Paul had to suffer, that he tells Timothy, endure hardship 
as you do the work of an evangelist. I am reminded of that all the time. There was a time not too long ago where I thought to myself, maybe eight years ago, why am I enduring this? Is this worth it? Why don't I just tell them I'm a Muslim? And I'll, what I'll mean by that is one who submits. And I mean in my head to Jesus. I don't want to smile. I can start to introduce the gospel back in a little bit here and there. Why don't I just do that? This is painful, and they're in pain. Spare us all the pain, Lord, should I do this? That's a ridiculous request. But I was reminded of something. I was reminded of Acts 9, and I was reminded that that, that the apostles rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And that's what kept me going and said, no, don't do that. Don't give up your identity. Your identity now is not a Muslim who believes in Jesus. Your identity now is a bondservant of Christ, and you have the fellowship of his sufferings. I never felt closer to God than when I had nothing but him to look to. You see how valuable he is when everything else that's valuable to you is stripped away. This is a biblical experience I believe every convert must have. Every Every believer, you, were raised in a, in a Western context, and you converted, and you paid cost to be converted. Don't rob them of that. They deserve it. Christ wants them to have it. It's a blessing. Please don't rob them of it. So I will leave you, and I'll close with these questions. Are you willing to stand up and say that Muslims must be willing to identify with Christ even if it means dying? Christ said it. Paul said it. Jesus promised that persecution is inevitable. Do you believe him? Jesus promised us that we will be blessed for suffering persecution. Do you believe him? Jesus tied persecution and suffering with evangelism, especially within our context. Do you believe him? The Holy Spirit through Paul tells us that Muslim converts, or any converts to Christ, attain a true identity with Christ by by fellowshipping in his sufferings. Do you believe him? I have experienced a taste of that. I have not been stoned. I have not been beaten for my faith. I have experienced the hardship. I have experienced a taste of it. And I will tell you, I believe him. I believe him. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.